Good to see you on this Sunday morning, and we're going to dismiss our kids at this time. If you're a child or have a child three years through third grade and want them to go to kids' church, I think Olivia and Jennifer are back there, our team, to receive them. So uh, if you kiddos want to go ahead and go, Hadley, that means mine. <laughs> Mine's not paying attention. If you guys want to go to kids' church, you can. All right. The rest of you, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. It is good to see you this morning here in this room. And be honest, some of us were thinking a little earlier that uh, since we were up at the pavilion last Sunday and everything was different and, and enjoyable later in the morning, it was 1030, I was really wondering if you'd forgotten that we were coming back in here this morning and doing a 9 and a 1030 service. And so... Thought it was going to be us for you and, and no more this morning, but it is good to see you today and excited to be able to uh, worship together and uh, look here in Revelation chapter 19 and talk about the return of Christ. We just sang about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God breaking in and, and what it does for us. And this morning, I want us to look at what the Lord says about his second coming and what that's going to be like for us but for also those who are in rebellion against him. You know, what we see in the second coming of Jesus is the hero coming again. There's nothing like a story where the hero makes his appearance or her appearance, depending on the story. You see, when the situation in the story seems like it's at its worst, it seems like there's no, um, no good ending that can take place, like the darkness is overtaking the light, at that moment in the story, the champion arises. The champion shows up. The champion takes his stand. And in that moment, everything changes. One of my favorite stories, and I'll be honest, I'm not much of a of a reader that just goes and reads novels. When I read, and I do read a, a bit, quite a bit, when I read, it's typically in the area of ministry or leadership and theology, things like that. I'm not a big novel person, but I love movies. And so if you can take a novel, put it into a movie, uh, if you can take a book this thick and reduce it to a movie, I am your guy to watch that. One of those stories is J.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. So I'm going to be honest, I've never read them. I've never read The Hobbit, even when I was a kid. But I've seen the movies Dozens and dozens of times. In The Lord of the Rings, if you're familiar with it, you know this. If you're not familiar, I just want you to, to kind of know the, the basic general idea of the story. In The Lord of the Rings, the Dark Lord Sauron, as he's known, campaigns to conquer and to rule all of Middle-earth. In an earlier age, he had created this ring, the One Ring, to rule all other rings of power in order to bring the lands of Middle-earth under his control. And so that ring had been lost, he's been defeated, now he's searching for this ring to regain his power and control. And as he's doing this, men from Gondor and Rohan, and along with the dwarves and the elves, they join together, they unite forces to battle against and push back against the forces of Sauron, the lord of darkness. And so they're really operating like a chess match, moving throughout Middle-earth, trying to defeat, trying to, to oppose, trying to push back the forces of darkness. And while they're doing that, two hobbits have taken the ring of power into Mordor to the mountain of doom or the mountain called Mount Doom in order to destroy it there in the fire of the mountain where it was forged. 
As those two hobbits, their names are Frodo and Sam, as they're getting close to Mount Doom, Sauron's forces gather outside the great white city known as Minas Tirith. And they gather together the hordes of Mordor, the hordes of Rune, and they're coming against this city. They are covering the landscape. As far as the eye can see, there's nothing but the armies of Sauron. And as they're battling, as it seems like the battle is going the wrong direction, as it seems like Minas Tirith will fall, Aragorn arrives on the scene. Aragorn is the throne, or the, the heir to the throne of Gondor. And along with him are Legolas and Gimli, the rangers of the north, and the dead men of Dune Harrow. I, I know right now you're sitting here thinking, I've got to go read this book, I've got to go watch this movie, this trilogy. But when he and his forces arrive, as you know the story, everything changes. Everything in the battle swings toward the forces of the light, and Sauron's forces are destroyed. The tide of the war shifts toward the light at that point. As great of a story as the Lord of the Rings is that Tolkien created, it pales in comparison to what we find right here in the book of Revelation. You know, as we've journeyed through the visions that John received that are recorded for us here, we've learned that as the end draws near and as salvation history closes, God's people will experience an increase in tribulation. A great tribulation, the Bible tells us, will take place. And Satan, that great red dragon, will war against the Lord. He's going to war against his church. He's going to make everything more and more difficult. He's going to put to death God's people, as many as he can. He will summon, as we've learned, the beast and the false prophet. And together, they will form a counterfeit trinity to deceive and to rule the nations. Revelation speaks of it as calling it Babylon. This Babylon, this final human empire, will serve the beast. They will bring the nations of the world under his control. And as this rebellion and this war against the church increases, the Lord will judge the godless peoples of the earth. One of the things that we see in Revelation is judgment. In fact, that's the overarching theme of this book. It's the judgment of God against sin and against sinners. It's the judgment of God against evil. And we would love, many times when I am standing up here to preach or preparing to preach as we've been walking through Revelation, I've often thought to myself, man, I wish I had a little bit more optimistic of a message. I wish I could come up here and just kind of speak some warm fuzzlies to us this morning. But that's not the message of the book of Revelation other than what we're going to see this morning in the return of Christ. But by and large, what we see in Revelation is the judgment of God being poured out. It is not a happy message, at least for the sinners. It is a happy message for those of us who have been redeemed, who have experienced His forgiveness, who long for His return, and long for the justice of God to rule and to reign. And yet it's a somber message for us because we know what has to take place for that to happen. And so as the rebellion is increasing, the judgment of God is coming. We see the judgment coming in the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, which we've looked at. They reveal God's sovereign power over all of evil. I want you to know this morning that regardless of how bad things get in this world, and they will get worse, God's sovereign control over all things never will waver. And in your life, when things seem like they're just falling apart, when you get that bad report, you get that bad financial statement, you get that bad medical report from the doctor, and you think, goodness, what am I ever going to do? Could it get any worse? It probably can get a little worse. But God's sovereign control over your life and his goodness and grace never will waver. 
And that's what we're seeing here, is that God's sovereignty is in control. It's in power. His justice will be upheld. His call to the nations at the same time in all of these judgments is for them to repent and to turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we've seen is that some will turn in faith. Some will turn in repentance, but most will refuse to turn from their sin. They will bear the mark of the beast. So as God's judgment increases upon the wicked, the nations, as we've read, will gather together at Armageddon. We saw that in chapter 16. In this one final battle, they will gather together to war against the Lord. People from every nation, from every tribe are assembling. They will fill the landscape of that valley. As far as the eye can see, they will be dressed for war. They will be in battle formation. And it will seem as if they might win until the champion arrives And all is over. Everything changes in that moment. I want us to read about this hero this morning. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, the words should be on the screen for you this morning. John says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, John says. Let me just pause here for a second. Here's something you need to to understand when it comes to the difference between angels and humans. Angels and humans are on equal status, equal ground when it comes to our relationship to the Lord. Are we different? Yes. Angels are angels and humans are humans. Humans are created in the image and the likeness of God. And I don't think we can say that about angels. But what the angel here tells John as he sees the glory of this angel and hears the words of the angel, his his response was to just fall down and worship. It wasn't so much that he wanted to worship the angel. He just felt like that was the right thing to do. But the angel reminds them. You're not to worship me. I serve the Lord just like you serve the Lord. We are brothers yoked in this ministry together. And so the next time you are um, at a funeral or the next time you lose, you lose a loved one, don't say or don't think to yourself, God just needed another angel. No, he didn't need another angel. Number one, your loved one's not an angel now. They're still a human being in the presence of God as a believer or Vice versa if they're an unbeliever. But we're never turned into angels. We don't get our wings upon death. Let's go back to the text. I just felt like you needed to know that this morning. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against them, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who, it, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's that somewhat depressing message that we see here, and yet it's a message of hope. It's a message of joy because we see that God's justice will be upheld. You know, these verses here describe for us the return of the Lord Jesus come. His breaking in as a second time as Lord and Messiah. We see here that in verse 6 that the king returns, and why does he return? He returns to reign. Aren't you grateful this morning that God's kingdom isn't something that's in history past, but it is something that it is today a reality and tomorrow will also continue to be a reality. His kingdom was inaugurated in his first coming. It was inaugurated through his death and his resurrection. It was inaugurated through his payment of sin there on the cross as it was atoned for so that sinners could be set free from the bondage of sin. The kingdom of God came. The kingdom of God, when it came, the Holy Spirit also came. He was sent to be a down payment of this kingdom promised to come. And now the Lord Jesus returns to put an end to all evil and to fully establish his rightful rule over his creation. The kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is coming. Now there's much debate over the chronology of the return of the Lord Jesus. We've been working through this for 12 months. I know that most of you don't agree with me on the chronology of this. That's because you're wrong and I'm right. Right? There's much debate. Now, some understand it to be a two-stage event. The first stage being the, 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 the return of the Lord Jesus. It involves this, this uh, return to the Lord to not put his feet on the earth, but to be in the air. And he calls, he raptures the church to himself in the air. And then they're removed for the period of the tribulation to return with the Lord at the end of the tribulation. Many, being, many believing it is a seven-year literal tribulational period. And so this rapture or the snatching away of the church is understood to take place either at the beginning of that tribulation. Then there are others who would look at the, the way it's described in the Word of God and say, no, it's not a pre-trib, it's a mid-trib. And so maybe at that three-and-a-half-year mark or somewhere around that, the church is taken, it's snatched away. The purpose in all of this is to take the church and to protect the church from the wrath of God that is unleashed on sinners in the trumpet and the bowl judgments. Now others, and I would throw myself into this camp, this is where some of you would disagree with me, but others would look at the way the Scripture des describes this and say, it's not a pre-trib, it's not a mid-trib, 
It's a post-trib type of rapture. That after the tribulational period that God sustains, that God preserves through the tribulational period, then as Jesus returns, immediately when he comes, he calls the church to himself, and then they're glorified and they come with the Lord in this scene that we've read here in Revelation chapter 19. Now this morning, I want you to know that if you're a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, if you're all millennialists, uh, if you're a post-millennialist, we can talk later because I don't know how you can justify that in Scripture. But we don't need to make big deals out of these, big word here, eschatological positions, positions regarding the end times. They're, they're second and third areas or levels of theology. But I just want you to understand that there's difference of opinion in how this will unfold. But here's what we can all agree on. Jesus, the King, returns. Amen. And this is what happens here in chapter 19 when he returns. Sin and sinners will be put down. Their rebellion will be squelched, and the king will reign. Here in the New Testament, as we read it, there are two aspects of this return. There is the rapture, and there is judgment. There is the rapture of the saints. There is the judgment of the sinners. And so, as you've hopefully begun to understand, as we've studied through Revelation, the judgment of sinners is what is most important in Revelation. We want to look at the, 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 the glories of what it means for believers. We want to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. We want to talk about walking on streets of gold. We want to talk about the house that's been made for us. Now, some of that we get from other parts of the New Testament. Most of it's not even t- pertains or contained in the Revelation because John here, as he receives these vision, first and foremost, the priority is on judgment against sin and sinner. And so it's not a happy message all the time. And yet it's a happy message because the justice of God is vindicated. Talk about the rapture a lot in the church, but as we read Revelation, you really, outside of chapter 11 and the rapture or the taking up of the two witnesses that were caught up into the cloud, there is no other clear teaching on a rapture. And so we got to go to the rest of the New Testament for those. Every Sunday, we, uh, we upload the manuscript for my sermons. You can go to our message page, go down there to whatever the sermon series, go to the message that we're on, and you can click on the PDF and take it, download it, print it, burn it, whatever you want to do with it. But I, I list there all kinds of references, verses that speak to the things that I've just mentioned. So I would encourage you this week, take some time to study through those and see what the Word of God says about this rapture and the return of the Lord Jesus, how that's going to take place. Right here in chapter 19, as we look at this, as we've read this, it seems as if the church has already been caught up when Jesus returns with his army and makes war against the beast, the false prophet, and the army that's with them. Based on 714, chapter 1714, we see that, that uh, it is the church they are with the Lord. And we also probably could throw in there that there's angels in this army that's mentioned here in verse 14 of chapter 19. And so angels are with the Lord. The church is with the Lord. Um, we can't ne- necessarily determine when the rapture is going to take place. But we do know basically at this point that the church is with the Lord as he comes to make war with the beasts. What is he going to do when he makes war? He's going to conquer 
the beast. All throughout this, I want you to know that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is in first place. He is Lord over all things. He's king and king of kings, Lord of lords, as John tells us. John's vision here gives us a beautiful portrayal of the glory of God, the power of God, as well as the justice of God, and it offers us two invitations. I want to speak to those real briefly this morning that we see here, two invitations that we're going to see, we're going to be confronted with as the second coming comes. And I say we, meaning humans, not we, the church, but humanity will be presented with two invitations at the second coming of the Lord. First of all, I want you to see this first invitation. That is, believers are summoned to a great feast. Everybody loves food, right? I don't know that this marriage supper of the Lamb is is actually a meal. I'd like to believe it's a meal. I've joked with you before, we'll probably eat Chick-fil-A if it is. I mean, a glorified Chick-fil-A that doesn't cause, uh, you know, any fat cells to grow or anything like that. I could get behind that sort of thing. Or maybe it's brown beans, fried potatoes, and cornbread, which is one of my favorite meals of all time, beginning from the um, great state of Arkansas where I grew up on that kind of stuff. I don't know if it's going to be a meal, but I do know it's going to be in the presence of the Lord. In other words, I don't know if it's a literal meal or if it's symbolic of the fact that we are united once and for all and finally with the Lord. So as we look at this first invitation, you need to know that it comes from the vantage point of the believers. Last week we looked at the Hallelujah courses in the first five verses of this chapter and how they celebrate the vindication of the suffering of God's people, the destruction of the great prostitute that, that vindicates their suffering. Now in the second part, verses 6 through 10, we see the final reign of Christ being celebrated. We ought to celebrate the fact that Jesus reigns and Jesus will continue to reign. The kingdom of God that came through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus now is finally and fully reigning supreme as he should. And so the Lord Almighty initiates this marriage supper of the Lamb. We see it there in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult, give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And then he says in verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, throughout the Bible, marriage is used as a metaphor. It's used as a word picture to talk about our relationship, humans' relationship with the Lord. It's talked about when we're strained from the Lord in the context of infidelity, in the context of adultery. And so there's this strong relationship between marriage and what it means to walk in step with the Lord God. In fact, in Hebrew culture, where this is drawn from, the marriage contract, this agreement, was developed and signed, if you will, long before the betrothal or the betrothal even took place. Back then, they would have what we would call an engagement. It was a little bit more than that in the Hebrew culture. And so they would be betrothed to one another. And literally during that, that season, that period between the betrothal and the wedding ceremony, they were known as husband and wife. This is why it makes sense that when Joseph learned that Mary was pregnant and he, she, he knew it wasn't his, he was going to secretly and quietly divorce her, the Bible says, because she was with child. It's because they were, they were looked at as being husband and wife. And yet they didn't fully consummate that relationship until the wedding ceremony was finalized. So as it comes to our relationship with the Lord through Christ, when Jesus came the first time through the cross, the blood that was shed, the resurrection from the dead, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming, what we have there is what we might consider the betrothal 
of the Lord, this relationship, this marriage relationship that we have entered into with Jesus. And so we're in that season leading up to the wedding ceremony, which will happen symbolically when Jesus returns and our relationship with God is fully experience. Now, it doesn't mean we have less of Jesus now than we will or we'll have more later. That's not what we're saying at all. It's the stages of our relationship with the Lord, what it means for us. In fact, Jesus kind of modeled this when he had that last meal with his disciples in the upper room. He took the the juice, he took the wine, and he told them, I'm not going to drink of this again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God, right? So he's saying here, what this meal symbolizes in your salvation and what I'm about to do for you, I'm not going to enjoy this until I get to have it with you again, this feast that we're talking about as the, as the kingdom of God fully and finally comes into our lives and into this world. And so we see here in chapter 19, verse 7, that this is the day that that takes place. This is the messianic banquet. What's going to happen on this day? Well, the righteousness of the saints will be rewarded. John here describes for us the bride's apparel that is going to be made up of her righteous deeds, according to verse 8, as she's made herself ready through faithfulness. See, we're going to be rewarded for our faithfulness, how we've lived our lives as followers of Jesus during this life. That's what we're going to be clothed with as we enter this ceremonial banquet with the Lord. Then the vision quickly changes analogies. The believers who are pictured as the bride now are referred to as the guest of the banquet, verse 9. And so the emphasis here is on the sovereignty of God. It's God who decides who gets to come and who doesn't get to come. Our task is to be ready to meet the Lord. And then the Lord Jesus is going to return. And when he does, his kingdom will reign. His bride will be united with her groom, and they, the, ch- they, the church, will enjoy the glory of being in relationship with God for all of eternity. That's the return of Christ. But there's a second invitation. Unbelievers are summoned to be feasted upon. Here's the gory side of this message. Unbelievers who walk in, and continue in a rebellion with the Lord will be feasted upon. The second invitation then, obviously, is coming from not from the perspective of a believer in Jesus, coming from the perspective of an unbeliever, someone who's walking in rebellion against God. And so here, Jesus descends from heaven as the warrior Messiah. We see it in verse 11. He's riding a white horse. It doesn't necessarily speak of purity, though we can say, yes, Jesus is pure. It's speaking and it's symbolizing a conqueror, a mighty warrior. Warrior, The hero is coming into the story. And he comes not to rescue the saints. He comes to punish the sinners. He's coming in vengeance. He's coming in war. When he came the first time, he came with meekness. He came with grace. He came with humility. Now he's coming in wrath and in judgment. So this is the antithesis of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I like what Eugene Peterson says uh, in contrast to the meal and the war and how they define the two sides of salvation. Listen to what he says. He says, salvation is the intimacies and the festivities of marriage. Salvation is aggressive battle and the defeat of evil. Salvation is neither of these things by itself. It is the two energies, the embrace of love and the assault of evil in polar 
tension, each defined by the other, each feeding into the other. So as we think about our salvation, salvation was not just Jesus on the cross shedding his blood so that we could be forgiven. Salvation also includes the return of Jesus and full judgment coming against sin. You see, in both cases, judgment was coming on sin. It's just Jesus absorbed our judgment upon himself from the Father so that we could be forgiven. But judgment will come in both cases. Jesus is the warrior Messiah. And he comes riding on this warrior horse, this white horse, as a conquering hero. John describes him as faithful and true. That is, he's faithful to his character, is true to his word. And so what Jesus has said, what the Lord has said throughout his word about justice and judgment against sin, he will carry it out. He judges and he wars in direct response to his righteousness. He talks about having flames or eyes of flaming fire. In other words, his eyes penetrate and they discern all things. On his head are many crowns. You know, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, they they, uh, concocted this unholy trinity. In fact, the dragon and the beast have diadems or crowns on their heads. They're emulating the idea of being a king of kings, this motif here in Scripture. But it's Jesus who is actually the one true king of kings and lord of lords. He also bears a name that no one knows. Now, this new name expands the promises that were given to the church at Pergamum and the church of Philadelphia. If we were to go back to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, we would see there. And so, At the same time, we could also see this second coming uh, being a fulfillment of those things as believers are given the new name promised to them. It's a name written on Christ, which he will write on us. And so is it something that we'll never know this name, or is it something that's connected to these two churches? I tend to believe that it's a name that's connected to the promise of those two churches that we receive new names, and that name is in him. It's warrior Messiah. Not only does he have crowns on his head and eyes like flaming fire, his robe is dipped in blood. You could argue that the blood is from his sacrifice on the cross. I would argue that it's most likely from his vengeance being reaped upon the sinful. Now, some would say that can happen because chronology is not. That's actually going to happen in a few verses. It hasn't happened yet. Well, that's the way apocalyptic language is written. That's the type of literature that, it, that this is. You could say something is so before it is so because you know it's going to be so. Well, I'm not going to say that again because that was confusing even to me. But that's apocalyptic literature. It doesn't matter that it's not mentioned until later because God sees all things that begin, the end from the beginning. God of justice, what we see here, will demonstrate his justice by shedding blood. We learned back in chapter 14, the blood will flow as high as the horse's bridle. Behind the warriors, a mighty army, they are arrayed in purity and righteousness, verse 14. From his mouth is going to come a sharp sword. It pronounces guilt and executes a sentence of striking down the nations. He's going to rule over those nations by crushing them with a rod or the iron scepter. The warrior king is then crowned or proclaimed king of kings and lord of lords. Before the battle even commences, what happens? An angel comes and he summons the carrion birds, the vultures and the buzzards and the crows and ravens and 
everything that would feast upon flesh. He summons them to a great feast. He invites them to eat the flesh of kings and captains and the mighty men, horses, their riders, small and great alike, all the men who are going to engage in this battle. I don't believe it's, it's speaking of every human being on the face of the earth. I'll talk more about that next week as we get into the millennial kingdom and, and the reign there and Satan being unbound and being able to tempt people. We'll get into what that's going to look like. But everyone who's engaged in this battle, will be destroyed, the blood will run, the bodies and corpses will lay there, and the birds, the birds, the birds will feast. That's the invitation here. It's not to unbelievers to enjoy something. It's to the birds to feast upon the unbelievers. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? That's a message you won't hear in some churches, just be honest. The next great thing that happens here is John tells us that the beast and the false prophet, along with the kings, are all defeated. What's great about that is, is the kings are defeated. This empire is put down. The, be- the birds will feast. But the beast and the false prophet, the second and third person of this unholy trinity, are caught alive and they are cast into the lake of fire. They are eternally judged and punished for their wickedness and rebellion against God. You see, when Christ returns, sin and sinner will be destroyed. Can I get an amen for that? The sin in your life that you struggle with, the temptations that haunt you, there's going to be a day that that is over. We're going to get into a lot of that next Sunday, Lord William. The rebellion against God will be put down fully and finally. Judgment will be dispensed on all those who have risen up against God. And vindication will come for all who have embraced him as Lord and Savior. It will be a great day of rejoicing. Not rejoicing that people's lives are being taken, but rejoicing, as I said last Sunday, that the justice of God has been upheld. Anytime we feel like justice has not been upheld, it angers us. You know, there's people that have been rioting all summer long. You could argue for various reasons, but on some level, there is an element of people who have been rioting all summer long because they believe justice has not been served. I'm not here to say if it has or has not. But that's the reality that they believe that it has not been served. So it angers them. So we as the people of God, when we feel like, not, not, not so much feel, but we see and we know that the justice of God has been treaded upon, we rejoice in the fact that Jesus will come and make all things right. That he will be proved true and righteous and holy. So here is the forces of man assembled together in what is probably the battle of Armageddon. It's going to seem, from a human's perspective, it's going to seem like everything is lost. The nations of the earth have assembled in this great area, and they are littering, littering this, the, sea, or the, the landscape and the, the, the hillsides. This army is without number. It's countless, and they're coming against the people of God. And here's probably what we know about the people of God at this point. They're like you and I. We're not armed. We're gracious and humble and kind. We're not there for war, and yet we will be warred against. And it will look like the people of God, the church, will be destroyed and put under. And yet at that moment, what's going to happen? The eastern sky will split. The trumpet will sound. Jesus will descend. The people of God will be with them. Those who are left will be caught up into the air to meet him. And we will all come outfitted for war for a great battle against evil as the hero breaks in. As we reflect upon this scene, I want to give you two implications real quick as we close. 
two implications for us today as we prepare for that day. Number one, live out your faith in Jesus. Pretty simple. As we think about the final day, what do we need to be doing? Living day by day in faith. Trust in the Lord. Believe in the Lord. Living righteously before the Lord. You know the old adage that, is, that, that says you are saved by grace, but you'll be judged by works has never been more true as, than what we see here. Yes, we're saved by grace. We're not saved by works. But there's coming a day that we will stand before the Lord, and we will be judged by what we've done for the Lord and with the Lord. And here we see that the church is arrayed in their deeds of righteousness. We want to be found having deeds of righteousness that we can be clothed with, that we can be an honor to the Lord rather than being embarrassed in his coming. And so Jesus has to be more than a parachute for us, a spiritual parachute. I was talking with one of our guys about skydiving just a little bit ago. What a great, par- a great illustration for this. You know, here's what some people do in the church. Jesus is nothing more than a spiritual parachute for them. They, they, when they're in a, 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 a pinch, when they're in a, in, a, in a state of crisis, when they're in a moment where they have no other hope, they want to be able to reach back and grab the spiritual parachute that's called Jesus, put it on them as they're falling to their death so that they can be saved. That's what people want. Or they want Jesus to be their crutch. Or they want Jesus to be their eternal fire insurance. Rather than Jesus being king over their life and Lord over their life. He wants, he's Messiah and he desires to be in relationship with you. But in that relationship, he is master of all. And so our responsibility is to live out our faith in Jesus obediently, humbly, and fervently. He's a good God. Fills the deepest longings of our heart. He fills the holes in our lives. He's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. But let's never forget, he is king. Amen? Second implication. Come to faith in Jesus. I've told you throughout these judgment bowls and trumpets and seals that in the judgment that's being dispensed, there is a call for repentance. There's a call to faith in all of them. Many will turn to the Lord, but not all. In fact, the vast majority will not turn to the Lord. They will continue to walk in rebellion. They will continue to to, to shake their fists in the face of God. They will continue to blame God for their, their, uh, their, their judgment and their suffering that they're under. So for, today, for us today, what is the implication? It, it is this. If you're not in relationship with Jesus Christ, understand you are under the just judgment of a holy God. And what we're talking about here in this chapter, if you're alive at that point, that will be your fate. And if you were to die before then, apart from the Lord Jesus, you will meet a devil's hell. Judgment will be poured out. God is righteous and God is just. And so please, I plead with you as Paul would plead with you, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish sometimes, like I said earlier, on one level to be able to, come in and as a preacher just speak little loving things and and just say, you know, everything's going to be a lot good in your life. Everything's hunky-dory. Everything's just high and pie in the sky and it's just wonderful. Isn't life grand? That's not the reality of where we live today. If you don't believe that, just turn the news on. We live in a messed up world. You know why it's messed up? We're messed up. We got this problem called sin. And it's eating away at us. It's killing us. In fact, Paul even tells us that it has killed us. It separated us from God and that we are under his judgment. But the good news of the Bible, the good news of the gospel is that God loves you despite what you've done. 
despite the atrocities in your life, despite the rebellion in your heart, despite uh, what you will do in the future. God loves you. He created you perfectly for himself. The bad news is that you are a sinner. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us deserve the just judgment of God. All of us deserve that because it's the payment for sin. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. That's the bad news. We're broken and separated from God. The best news is that God has done for you what you could not do for yourself. You see, when Jesus came the first time, he paid the debt for your sin. He went to the cross. He shed his blood, holy blood, divine blood, so that you could be forgiven. Nails were piercing his skin as he hung there on the cross so that you could be forgiven of all sin. And then there's more than that. He's coming again. So that when he started on the cross, he's going to finish when he comes in fully and finally at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. The things that we've read about this morning. And so today, what's the message? Come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Believe on him for salvation. Confess your sin. Trust him as Lord and Savior. It is a simple, simple thing. When I was 18 years old, I understood the gospel and I just simply prayed a prayer like this. Lord, I've been religious. It's not enough. I need you in my life. Forgive me of my sin. Become the Lord and Savior of my life. It was something that the Lord led me in. It was not a magical, mystical, subjective type of moment. And yet it transformed my life so that I've never been the same. Am I as holy as I ever will be? Absolutely not. I'm just like you. I struggle with sin and temptation and the flesh every single day. But God is working in my life. And it's all because of Jesus. Today, if you're a follower of Jesus, live out your faith in him. If you're not a follower of Jesus... What would keep you from coming to him today? If you're joining us online this morning, I want to encourage you to just respond to us. You can click the the button there and send us a direct message. You can email us here at the church that's on the screen. You can uh, just reach out to us in any way possible. Call our office tomorrow. If you have my personal cell phone or anything like that, reach out to us or one of our elders. We want to hear from you, even here in the room this morning. If God is speaking in your heart, let's respond in faith and in repentance. Let's pray this morning as Ben comes. Father, we thank you today for your goodness and your grace, and we thank you for your justice. As we've read here in chapter 19, we are just so excited, so overwhelmed by the fact that sin will be put down one day in every way. God, we thank you. We look forward to that day when we won't have to worry about those things. We won't have to struggle with those things. We won't have to, to, even as a Christian, be hesitant about living out our faith for fear of what someone may say, what someone may do, or even like in many places around the world, fear of great persecution. Because our God will set upon his throne and he will rule the nations in his rightful place. God, we long for that day. It's a reality this morning for every one of us sitting here, everyone watching online this morning is that God even as we long for the day for you to sit on your throne and rule the nations we struggle on a daily basis keeping you on your throne in our lives God I pray you'd help us with that I pray for believers that they would live out their faith in Jesus that Lord God they wouldn't hold on to sin they wouldn't hold on to the things of this world Lord they would keep their eyes upon you they would be expecting it in their faith trusting and believing and longing for your return wanting to present themselves as a bride for her groom in all her beauty so God may we 
loosen our grip on the things of this world and tighten our grip on the things of God. Would you help us this morning? Lord, I pray for those who have not put their faith in Jesus. God, I pray that what we've read this morning, the judgment that's coming, I pray that it would put a little bit of fear in them. A little bit of urgency. Holy Spirit, draw them to faith in the Lord Jesus. It's a simple prayer. It's a simple plea. God, it'll change a life. It'll change eternity. So Lord, I pray you'd be with them this morning as they make these decisions. As we move into this time of responses, we sing, God, help us to respond as you so directed. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. As Ben leads us, let's respond to the Lord.